0: Welcome back to our interview with Dr. Lee Dorpfeld. Before we get started, we wanted to remind you about our patch sale code for Nexus Sports Medicine AT and MedCross patches. You can use the code polos and khakis for twelve percent off. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at polos and khakis underscore. Please enjoy part two of Dr. Lee. So I work with the a- I work with a really different patient population now. I'm in an orthopedic surgeon's clinic. Um, And so we, I see a much older population who um, generally just like refuses to talk about mental health things. Um, And then also who a lot of our patients don't, I think, have the background to realize that mental health and physical health kind of go hand in hand. So I've seen quite a few like post-operative patients that... I can see from the way they come into our clinic that they're very apprehensive. I get reports back from the physical therapist that their anxiety and their stress in the clinic is limiting getting their motion and their strength back because they're so worried about it. And it's so weird to come from an athletics setting where mental health is like widely regarded as the piece of the pie that you're not going to get 100% back without that piece of the pie. And now have patients that, like, oh, I wish I could, like, just send them somewhere or, like, have someone to, like, just touch base with them because I feel like they would benefit from it so much. But it's just, like, with a 45-year-old patient that happened to tear an ACL skiing or playing with her dog or something that, like, it, I feel like it doesn't occur to anybody to say, like, Do you should we do some mental health work as well to help with that recovery process?
1: I I think that's a great example. And and I think you're familiar with this. One of the things that we do is anybody that has surgery, we kind of highly request that they see me three times, one pre-op, one post-op and one about a month out during their rehab. So we integrate that in. I think one of the things, it's actually a great opportunity. You talk about an older population. I'm not sure 45 is an older population, but we'll go with it for now. Um, but but here's the idea, right? They're from a generation where that was still stigmatized, where anything around mental health was stigmatized. You're talking 45 and up. You talk people in their 50s and 60s. They're still coming from a time when we didn't talk about any of this stuff. So their fear and apprehension make sense from the milieu and the and the cohort that they're in. So you can't come at them from a mental health perspective overtly and get right in their face. They're going to shut down. They're going to kick you out the door. But you can come at them from a performance perspective because they're still wanting to get better. They're still wanting to get healthy and go skiing again. So what you kind of have to do is is create an environment, and maybe it becomes part of a protocol, just initially to kind of just put it out there, see who bites, is the idea of, okay, Mr. Smith, you've had this accident, you had an ACL repair, your meniscus was gone. We know this is going to be a year recovery. Skiing's a really big part of your life. Here's some things that we think, in addition to our, our PT and the stuff that we're going to do, could be really helpful to you. Are you willing to try it to get you back healthier or faster or fully? You also the other thing I would think about is look at their backgrounds. You know what kind of careers they're in. You know what kind of stuff they do. When you guys do your intake, might be a way to think about it. And say, okay, I have somebody who's a hedge fund ma- manager, who's competitive as hell, is out there making money for himself or herself and others, and we know they're competitive. All right, how can we integrate some of these skills into their rehab by using that competitive streak? If it's somebody that you know really values their one family vacation a year, it's like getting back to be able to go to Colorado in the mountains and do that kind of thing is really important. So the motivational interviewing. Towards this topic could be a really good place to integrate both of them. You start off with motivate motivational interviewing about where are you at with change, meaning adding this component. Who's receptive? Who's not? What are some of the fears? What are some of the barriers? Okay, let's then address some of those fears and barriers. They're older and they're stigmatized by calling it mental health. Don't care what you call it. We know what it is. We know what we're doing. But if they're uncomfortable with that, we're not asking them You know how they got potty trained. We're kind of coming at it from more of this is part of what we do to help you be able to get back as healthy as we can in ways that we can help you. So if you start with motivational interviewing, get a sense for that patient and then use some of the skills like, listen, we know and there's research to this. I'm not going to give you exact numbers. I'm not up on the research. I wasn't prepared for that question, but we know that there's an increase in performance. Through visualization. So, if you're having them do exercises that they spend two minutes seeing in their head before they have to do it, the brain doesn't know the difference between a real rep and and a visualized rep. It's all encoded in the brain in the same way. So, if they can visualize themselves extending that knee or raising that shoulder or whatever the situation is in their mind first, their muscles are going to react to that. So, you could do a five minute presentation on the mind body thing. Again, not calling it mental health, that's actually more sports performance stuff, but get them to respond in that way. So you kind of have to look at performance before you can do mental health, which is very similar in sports. Most athletes don't want to talk about their mental health. They talk about being sad, depressed, scared, fearful, afraid of their contracts, what's going to happen, losing their stuff. Sc- they don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about getting better. But once you get them talking about their performance and seeing what's impacting that and having them identify the barriers to them performing, you can kind of back into, oh, so you get really nervous uh, on the mound when you got the ball in your hand and there's a runner on third and you wonder why you're throwing ball four. Let's talk about what that experience is and how can we calm down the body, calm down and slow down the mind so that you have a better chance of finding the zone on that pitch rather than throwing ball four. little integration of specialties
2: there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Dan.
2: Oh, uh, yeah. I was just going to say, especially I like the comment where, you know, the brain doesn't really, it can't tell the difference between a mental rep and a real rep. You know, we always kind of talked about when we did our visualization was just, you know, it's the dress rehearsal of what we're about to do. Uh, we kind of watched a video on uh, the blue angels, um, the Navy. Sorry if I'm wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure they're the Navy, um, you know, before every show, they actually go through like all the calls that they're gonna make in a in a briefing, um, and just basically go over exactly what's gonna happen, so they can visualize. You know, actually, what's gonna happen. So I think visualizing, you know, see it before it happens is you know very key um, into you know having a good performance and getting better, like we've been talking about.
1: Well, and the other thing I'll add, and again, knowing your background, it's a baseball reference, but I can use it across the board. Is why do we practice things over and over and over again? So we don't have to think about it when the time comes and it's under a high stress situation right i don't i'd want to know when a ground ball is hit to me that i don't have to think about getting my glove on the ground and getting the ball in the glove and then pulling it out of the glove and getting my i don't want to have to think about all those things i want to just be able to react to what's going on or respond to what's going on in this situation if i can get ahead of that Why wouldn't I do it like that? Here's justification again. Why wouldn't I do something that's going to give me a better opportunity to be successful when the pressure and the stress is added? Otherwise, we'd never have to practice. Why do we go in the cage? To get better, to get our timing down, to get our foot down, to kind of see the ball, see the spin of the ball, do all those things so that when it counts, we're ready. Same kind of thing. The other thing I always say, too, as a way to get people to kind of buy in is this. You can do many more mental reps to prep your mind to tell your body what you want to do and you can't get hurt. You can stop whenever you want. And if you have like 20 hour rules or things like that, they don't count. Why not give yourself every opportunity to get better? One of my colleagues said this to me the other day and I want to just share this with you guys as something to think about. Uh, We were talking about different teams and different sports and their utilization of, of all of this stuff. And he said to me, he said, here's something I don't understand, Doc. And I said, bring it on. What do you got? He's like, I don't know why every team that has access to a person in this field, performance psychology, right? Isn't utilizing them to the max that they can. And here's the rationale. Number one, you're generally not gonna make their players worse. There is virtually nothing you're going to do that's going to hurt them, make them worse, impact them them in a negative way that's gonna take away from what they're doing. Not everybody's gonna respond and get better or get great, but if it's a tool that's available, that can be something that can enhance their performance, why wouldn't coaches support it as well? We've talked a lot about players over our conversation today. We can talk about the medical community at all. Why aren't physicians and orthopedists and you guys all integrating that in is just what we do instead of even having to talk about, do you want this add-on? So I, I think that's a different way to think about it too, because it's been where psychologists go in this dark room off the other side and nobody really knows and confidentiality and all that. It's actually hurt all of us in some way too. I think now having people that are more involved on a daily basis and around teams more and it's not such this big taboo also allows people to try it. But why wouldn't you try it? Like what, you can't, you, there's no harm that can come from it. You can not like it and walk away and that's fine.
0: Yeah, I agree. It feels like a wasted a wasted resource. It's like having, um, the ability to cast a broken bone and saying now nah, we'll we'll let it heal on its own and hope for the best like yeah probably will heal but like may end up crooked <laughs>
1: and i think like that tr- does translate into your setting liz in terms of medicine listen we can do regular rehab and we're going to do all this stuff and we're going to try to get you back to as close to 100 percent as we can here's this added tool that we can add to this that might actually help us do it a little bit better or get 1% better or further or closer to hundred percent. What's wrong with trying it once or twice? You really don't want to get better. So back, that goes kind of back to what we talked about a, a little bit earlier with, with Dan's questions. How do you sell it? I'm not selling anything. I'm just offering you another set of tools or additional tools to help you get better. You can choose to take them, use them if you want, no harm, no foul, but what do you got to lose if you say you want to be better? Counseling and mental health, different issue, but the performance side is really about like, how can, why not try it? You brought up a point at the beginning and we we glossed over it really quick and got onto some some other things that that might be helpful. Um, We talk about sports psychologists, we talk about counseling, we talk about mental skills, people, and the idea of like what we all do and how we all do different things and what that all look like. One of the things that I think is really important is that the consumer, whether that be coaches, players, patients are actually aware of what we each do, what we do the same, what we do different, what our background in training is because one of the things that is really scary is the fact that, okay, if we're going to offer this resource to people who are not familiar with it, how do they know what they're getting? And how do they know the competency of the people that are providing it to them? Um, it's really an interesting place right now because you can go online and find a, a performance coach anywhere. I, you know, I find their website, see who they are, and kind of think that they're the, the next best thing that's going to help you. But how do we also make consumers of this new trend aware so they know who they're connecting with, what that person's expertise are, what they do and don't do? And are we assessing the needs of that person in a really thorough way to help them get to the right type of provider? So I think that's something you mentioned it way at the beginning, Dan, you were kind of listing all the different things. And I think that's an important piece to, to touch on if, if you think that's good for, for our audience. Uh the other thing that we touched on earlier, just kind of going back, is the the changes not just caused by COVID, which we kind of went on a, a little bit of a, a run with, but also the changes due to the Austin case and NIL and some of the things that are also changing the landscape the transfer portal things like that that are important again I don't know how that plays into to our audience but just some things that I know we touched on at the beginning that I wanted to give you guys a chance to kind of revisit. Yeah, so um
0: Validity of providers is something I've been really curious about um, just because when we talked to you several years ago, we did bring up the idea of if you're a high school athletic trainer and you feel like one of your kids would benefit from mental performance or mental counseling how do you like go about finding someone when you're not already connected to somebody and how do you figure out like that that's the right fit for a person and I think that like you said it's even more true now than I think it was then because we've opened up a digital platform which means there's like 10 times as many people offering services and to know how qualified they are becomes a bit more difficult. But I also did have questions for you about how you think NIL is affecting um, how willing athletes and coaches are to pursue like mental skills and mental performance, because now there's a monetary motivation, not just a performance motivation.
1: Which topic would you like me to get after first? There's a lot. In- <laughs>
0: your, your choice.
1: <laughs> um, wow. So great, great, really, really great well thought out question. Um, The first thing is, I think in in all of our settings, medical settings, sports settings, whatever, um, it's important that we create a database of different types of disciplines um, that we make available to our clients and patients. Um, Understanding that there is a difference between a counseling and a clinical psychologist or a licensed professional counselor and a Performance coach. There's a difference between a life coach and counseling and what it takes to do that. Um, and being able to provide that information to your constituents. You know, I mentioned earlier to, to, to Dan's question about how baseball does it really differently than the NBA and, and the NFL and stuff like that. Um, the NBA actually came out with a really good proposal that they put out to all of their teams and said, here's the deal a sports psychologist is a person who is licensed as a psychologist by a state board that has passed all the things to license them in their domain with additional training and experience and supervised hours of working in a sport related milieu that's one level of qualification you have and and that's kind of comes out of the apa and, and the aca for counselors and stuff like that and social workers Is they have a mental health license that means they have multiple years of training in assessing the emotional and mental health of other human beings. Then you have only one, currently one, credential in the area of sport and performance psychology, which is the CMPC, the Certified Mental Performance Consultant, that's put out by ASP, which is the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, which requires X number of hours in the counseling field and x number of hours in performance and a certain number of hours of in you know supervised internship to attain that credential and it has to be renewed every five years so those if you look at so you got the psychologists and the counselors and the social workers that are trained in mental health that add extra qualifying experiences and postdocs and post trainings to learn the impact of sports performance that's physiology, kinesiology, all a lot of the stuff that you guys are experts in, but giving us an understanding, injuries, things like that, that you guys are actually the experts in, but that we need to have a working knowledge to know what the impact is. It's helpful if a psychologist knows that an ACL is generally going to take a year if they're seeing a client that's coming back off of that. Medical, sport, doesn't matter. So you have those criteria. The CMPC, the sports site. Psych- designation, certification, now has really grown to be an actual brand that says, I have training in mental health. I have training in assessment and psychopathology and assessment and team building and group settings and stuff like that, along with understanding team bonding and cohesion and arousal states and kinesiology and the things that come out of that, because I have to have a certain amount to get that certification. And then you have all these coaching certificates, can come from a whole host of places that you can get trained in that. so i think as a responsible provider that's going to be making recommendations it's getting that list understanding that what that looks like and having a base of all of those different providers available kind of in your referral list is really the best way to go and if you need help or anybody, you know, anybody needs help that reaches out to you guys and looking at those designations, I can send you the link so that they can look it up and understand it and see what that looks like. Because I think that's a really important first step is understanding what people can do. Base, Major League Baseball in their last barga- uh, collective bargaining agreement basically had one sentence that said, you have to provide sports psychology services to each team, period, the end. Not who, what, what the qualifications need to be, who they should hire, what kind of experience they have. You guys all go figure it out. Baseball's incredibly heavy in mental skills people. They generally have three, four, five per organization. How many mental health providers do they have? And some of that answer is zero. How do we know when a player comes to us and again, I'm sticking mostly with baseball because that's Dan's expertise, is how do we know when a player comes to us how to assess which type of thing they need if we don't aren't taught how to assess across the board or don't have the skills to assess across the board? That's like a patient coming into an orthopedics office and I'm going to do an assessment, but I don't know how to do an assessment. But the player doesn't know that generally. They haven't been educated on all that. This is the player that my team says is the guy or girl here for me to work with. So they must know what they're doing. Let me go do that. You know, we've seen way too many situations in Major League Baseball, including recently here in the Tampa Bay area. We had the suicide of the uh, bullpen catcher for the Rays. We've seen overdoses, we've seen suicides. We're seeing it more and more. We've seen it on the college side. We've had too many young people commit suicide or complete suicide. Too many, overdoses with drugs and alcohol, too many eating disorders, things like that. Well, in the past, people haven't wanted to admit that these things happen in the world of sports and entertainment. The second thing is, is do we have the right people assessing and making those decisions about what those people need and how to get it to them? It's a very serious situation that we need to be talking about all the time. It's great that mental health has become a big issue and a great talking point in our world. Absolutely. It's come out of the darkness. People can admit to it. People can identify it. People are less stigmatized. Now we got to make sure they're getting the right type of support for them and based on what their needs are. And and that's where it becomes really tricky to a consumer who goes out and goes online and goes, uh, performance coach. You'll see 500 names pop up, but do you see credentials and what that means and what their training is to know if that's for you? If you're, Liz, like in a referral situation, if you have a person that you believe from your training and experience is having an anxiety-based situation, do you want to send them to a mental skills coach or do you want them to send them to a mental health provider? becomes a big part of that decision-making. So I look at all of what I do on a continuum. Mental health needs to be looked at as a continuum. Mental illness is the most important, the most severe, the most catastrophic, all of those kind of things. But not everybody that has to or works in mental health is only working in mental illness. There's a lot of other things on that continuum as well. You have wellness, you have overall mental health. How do I keep myself mentally healthy? I have health and wellness coaching. I have mental skills coaching. I have all these things. So we need to teach it. This is just my kind of, soapbox. We need to teach mental health as a continuum. And the people that are assessing other people for where they are in that continuum to be able to then refer them to the appropriate level of care that they need and support that they need. So that's my thing on that. It's it's, it's a big deal because there's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of turf wars. There's a lot of things going on out there right now that can be really confusing to an uneducated consumer that's finally getting up the courage to say, I need something, I need help, or I'm open to that. Now we got to make sure that we're getting them to the right kind of providers for what they actually need. You know, some people that are, you know, if we're talking about, you know, um, I can't hit a putt to save my life. I don't necessarily need a psychologist. I might be able to do with a a person who's a mental skills coach that's really worked well with golfers and putting. They have some techniques that they use that they're able to use and have success with that because it's not a mental illness. But if the anxiety or the pressure that continues to build up from missing your putts now creates anxiety and an anxiety disorder, you also got to be willing to pass that person off to a person that can treat and help with that as well. So we got to be really careful. And I think college has done this in a way a little bit better than pro, and high school has got to be really careful with this, is making sure that the providers that you have are able to do the things you're asking them to do. So I think that that's that's I could go on on that one for another hour, but I think it's an important distinction for us to think about in all of our our areas. Uh, the NIL stuff is really interesting. Um, the opportunity for young people to capitalize on their success and their um, name, image, likeness, all of those kind of things. In and of itself, I don't know if it's good or bad yet. I don't don't know how to assess that yet, but the impact has been turning them into business people that also are given opportunities based on their name, how successful they've been, how successful they're being projected to be, but do they have the knowledge, education to know how to manage and handle them? No. Somebody can come up to you and say, I'm gonna give you $100,000 to." know push my product out there because you're a basketball player and i have a basketball product and i think it's going to be worth that for you and you do we have the legal knowledge to know what those contracts entail and what that goes into that what's really being asked to you are you are they being protected in any way from exploitation or in, is that a possibility that they can do what happens if they're making that money are they being taught in you know financial education of what to do with that? setting money aside for the future, maybe investing in retirement now and getting ahead on that kind of thing. Or they're just going out and spending it because they have it now. There's a lot of things that are coming with that. There's there's things on certain teams, you have you know the superstars that are gonna be able to get big time stuff and you got other players that may not get anything. How does that create an influence on a team? How does a coach manage that there's 15 requests for a player to go out and do personal appearances because they're the, the most well-known player on your team and then he or she comes back to the team and they're like, well, we don't get to do that and you get to do that. What if there's some rift that becomes apart? part of that now it's something new that the coach has to take care of and, and try to address and try to build a team with? Um, I think that there's a lot of things that just weren't really well thought out and planned before the rush came in to be able to do it. I'm not against it. I think there's a real value in them getting a piece of the pie for the work that they do and earn some some opportunities with that. I just think it got rolled out and went so quickly that we didn't really think all of these things out before it was able to get out there. Now we're talking about giving, you know, financial things for academics. If you hit a certain GPA, you can get more money. And if you do this, you can do that. Like it's just become a situation where I'm fearful that it becomes recruiting tools and the bigger schools that have more money and can give them more money to do all of these things are gonna to continue to generally get a certain type of player that other schools may not be able to do because they have a bigger budget to do it with or a bigger booster group that can go out there and offer them some certain things. Um, so I think, it, I think it's got potential to be really helpful to people that you know benefit from some exposure and some return on their own investment and get a feel for that. I just think it was rolled out really quick and, and grew so quickly. That the ramifications on the other side, I think they're they're going to be a big mark in, in college athletics for sure. Um, I don't know. More specifically, I see, you know, competition in the in the transfer portal in that way. That's uh, another part of this stuff too. It's like, listen, if, if I'm at school A and all I'm getting is my scholarship, and they're not winning or they don't have a a, a real big program. And I'm not getting any of the endorsement money or any of the other money, but I think I'm good enough that I can go play at a bigger school and get that. I'm out of here. I'm going in the in the transfer portal and hoping to go to that bigger school and get that done. I think that's hard. I think that you know also is hard on coaches. If I don't if I don't keep certain kids or keep them happy, then they can leave, and that impacts my program, impacts my ability to keep my job by winning games and matches and stuff like that. Um, the coaches have to deal with now. I've had a number of coaches, both you know, here and outside of here, talk about the change in what coaching is now. It's not teaching and developing young people as much as it's roster management. So what new challenges does that bring, not just to kids who used to get, you know, basically a four-year scholarship. They come, they go to school. If they play, they play. If they don't, they don't, but they're going to get their four, you know, five years to play four kind of thing. But now if you're not good enough and I can go grab somebody in the portal, you're not going to have that opportunity. You got to go find another job again. So I see, you know, the transfer portal, NIL, they, they're, they're n- none of them are, are by themselves a, a wonderful or a horrible thing. I just think this change has happened so quick that it's just gotten so out of control that we've skipped a lot of steps along the way in thinking about the, the implications or the preparations that we need to, to have it be successful.
0: I think NIL, like COVID, in five years, we're gonna look back and say like, oh, here are X, Y, and Z that we can definitely attribute back to this change. And whether those things are good things or bad things are kind of, I mean, it's impossible to predict the future, but I think looking back on those two, like really large events, especially being like relatively close together, I think that it's definitely gonna have some long-term ramifications. But I think mental health is part of it because the team dynamic changes so much.
1: You may one of the things that you got to tie it back to is when anything changes that quickly, that shift. There's going to be some fallout, right? Um, now, if that fallout isn't mental health, I'll be surprised. If it isn't their mental health and well being, I'd be very surprised because. How much anxiety is caused now by, I don't know if I'm going to be here next year because either I'm going to try to go somewhere else or my coach may get rid of me, or I can go make more money, or maybe my family's in a situation that they need money. So now I got to leave this school, try to go sell myself to another school to make more money, to help my family. There's a lot of different stories that are going to come out of it. But the uncertainty and the quickness of change, um, I kind of use this example, it's probably not the best, but it's effective, is this. I think, you know, you look at airplanes and airplanes change direction by degrees, right? Planes go and they change direction by degrees. If planes change directions too quickly and not by degrees, it's generally because something's going really wrong. And that level of change that quickly, you lose altitude. I mean, that's the, the, the reality of it. But when you change things by degrees, you get to the direction you're, you're going safer. I worry at times that all of this changed so quickly, coming out of COVID and dealing with that and not getting a chance to to heal and kind of reestablish things, throwing this on top of it and whatever is coming next is only going to create more challenges for, for mental health. And you guys asked earlier too, the mental performance thing is like, okay, Now I'm looking at do I have to have a mental performance person on my team because every year my team's changing and i got to make sure every guy or girl on my team is optimally performing at a level that's going to keep them here and help us win as opposed to in the the past there was a really big uh, hold on putting us in places in the first place. Now do we need to do everything we can to win so that everybody benefits. Um, So I do think it's going to change our field too, even more so now, know what you're hiring, know what you're getting, know what you want for your team. Because there's going to be people that are going to try to capitalize on this as well and, and be the next, for lack of a better word, guru that comes in and says, oh, if you let me do this program with your team, Liz, I guarantee we are going to win more games next year, which is a bigger contract and bonuses and all that. I don't know any guarantees that exist in that world. But there's going to be people out there and there's going to be people looking to improve and do that. So I think the impact is not just on the student-athletes. I think it's on coaches and administrators as well. How far can we go to compete in this new world? And what stress does that then trickle down to our players, especially young players, first-year players, freshmen, coming in, coming out of high school where none of that exists, getting thrown into that so quickly and potentially being expected to play at a high level as a freshman with all of this change without the support there to help them process it, go through it and, and prepare for it. They don't have that at high school level right now. There's not that preparation for what's coming. You can prepare physically for a bigger, faster game, faster pitching, all that kind of stuff, faster volleyballs coming at you. But you can't prepare the change that going from a senior in high school to a freshman in in division one college sports right now, there's just, it just doesn't exist. So then we get on the other end of it, which is how fast can we work to identify the people that need it, get them to see the benefit of it, have them buy in, help them and prepare them so that they're then ready to be able to go out on the field when the coach needs them. Like that's the, the crux of the work and it keeps us busy.
2: Yeah, nowadays it's not just, you know, here's your team, coach them up, win some games, and move on. You know, it's just, a, like you said, it's a roster management. It's, you know, keeping the fans happy, keeping boosters and all that other stuff happy, making sure everything stays in line. And then you throw on top of, oh, well, like my starting quarterback makes hundred grand a year through NIL. Do I bench him? And, you know, then he goes, you know, screw this, I'm out of here, I'm going to – you know, if he's at USF, I'm going to UCF, or I'm going to X other school in Florida. Um, yeah, you know, and then how's that going to affect him? So I think you know, you said it right. There's a lot more effect on coaching now um, because it's just another thing they have to balance in terms of having a you know a successful program where the dynamic is you know is harmonious throughout.
1: And I, and I think we need to be fair to that. We do a lot, just a, kind of another soapbox of my We do a lot of work on our student athletes and they're the focus players are always the focus for for what we're doing. And I think that's important and, and they need that. But we cannot forget the other side of the coin, which is the coaches and administrators and people that are making these decisions and having to deal with this stuff in a different way that they've never had to either. Um, you know, coaches can be able to go out and recruit a player with great talent that I know I can develop that I can use in this situation to bring this into my team. I'm going to go out and recruit that kid hard because I want them to come and play for me. Now that kid's sitting in their living room going, okay, coach, you want me to come play for you. What's in it for me? You got, you guys are in Adidas school, but I like Nike. Nike's going to give me $10,000 every time I score. Adidas doesn't give us that, so why would I go with your school? I think it changes recruiting as well. So now it's it's basically pro sports at a younger age.
2: And I think it also just kind of gives the athletes kind of more power, I guess. Like, oh, like you know, if you're not going to give me this or that, like I can just take my nil nil deal and go somewhere else. Yeah, you know, I think it gives them a stake where it's like, Hey, like you can come and, you know, try and make our roster or try and, you know, compete for the starting spot. And if you don't, then you're just kind of to, you know, hang out in the bottom of the depth chart, work your way up. And then now it's like, Oh yeah. Like I, I don't need that. Like I can just go to another school and, you know, take my business elsewhere.
1: Well, but also I think that's a little bit overrated because that's only happening for the top couple percent. Cause if you ain't playing at a, at a if you're not playing at a, a certain school because you're not good enough, and you say, I'm just gonna take my thing and go, you're not guaranteed another opportunity at another school. There's a lot of people on the portal that are winding up without places to play as well. Now, among the top percent, I agree with you 100%, Dan. If you're at that top 2%, maybe 3%, that can have the $100,000 deal and and shop it, I agree with you. But you said I was gonna play coach, and I came here to play, and now I'm not playing. But you're now costing me money because you're not playing me. When's the first coach gonna get sued?
2: It's definitely, uh, it's definitely turning into the wild, wild west, I'll tell you that much. And, you know, just more and more stuff is being thrown into college athletics. You know, or I think we're still just waiting on the day where these power five conferences and big things just say, you know what, we're just going to form our own thing. We're not going to be with the NCAA um, and just move on from it. And, you know, then who knows what can of worms out of open. So it'll be interesting to see in the next couple of years of what happens.
1: But I want, I want to pose something back to you and kind of get back into part of the vein of, of what we're all doing is, you know, in your roles as as trained athletic trainers and people who have worked in sports and, yeah, as you're working in a, in a clinic now. But, like, I think there's also a piece that we need to start talking about two other things that are really prevalent, the burnout rate in athletic training, because y'all had to work through COVID and be there and travel and put yourselves at risk and didn't get time off. That's a big thing that I think we have to think about from our medical professionals that are burning out and and considering whether to stay in the field or not. I think that's a really important part of some of this fallout. So I want to just kind of throw that out there out of respect for all the work that you guys and your colleagues do is, wait a second, let's not forget, yeah, players are getting this and coaches are getting this and there's, there's, there's a lot of pressure on the system, but who's keeping these kids out there being healthy, being able to play? Look at the hours that you all have to put in in all of your roles to be able to have them go out there and do what they do. And we're not looking at that impact either. Um, we need to also look at the the strain on the, the medical and mental health system of the providers as well and pay attention to that too. So that's one thing I, I think is important just to kind of throw out there is something to think about. And then the other thing is this is, you're probably at least in college and probably high school i would go i would say for sure somewhat at the pro level your role as a confidant for these players is going to have a lot of these conversations formally informally friendships whatever build and i think that one of the things that i suggest in the profession is maybe we need to add a class to athletic training in terms of your curriculum that has not just a mental health component for identifying anxiety and depression and knowing when to when to refer which I do think is important but also what happens when my athletes come to me and talk about these things how do i handle those situations because i want to be helpful i also want to be thoughtful and and certainly not ever destructive but more along the lines of you know what's the what's my role like how do we clarify what my role in that conversation is so Two points that I think kind of relate back to the to the spirit of, of the work that we're all doing and, and coming out of this whole athletic training, athletic medicine, you know, polo and khaki ideas. We're also part of this. And I don't want to ever not address that as well, because I think it's something that is now probably the most overlooked is, is what it's done to the people that have been out there on the front lines through all of this that are still getting um, a lot of the collateral damage. So. Those are just two other things that I think are relevant and important for future conversation, whether you know it be with us or, or with other people you have on your shows. Let's start to think about how do we take care of ourselves? We're losing a lot of people out of the profession because of the strain and stress that goes on them. They're going into the private sector, going back into medical clinics. And if nobody's here to take care of these kids when they get hurt, not if they get hurt, then there's not going to be a product on the field.
0: I think... NIL sparks even more of the um, urgency of moving athletic trainers and sports medicine departments out of the athletic department and into health departments and really, like, committing to a medical model because there is no way you don't end up in a conflict of interest situation if you're employed through an athletic department and a kid comes to you and says that they're considering transferring for x y and z reasons and then that puts you in a really bad position because at that point like you can't do you say something against your employer that isn't necessarily medical advice like that gets really dicey and I feel like if I were in a a secondary school setting right now or in a collegiate setting, like there would not be a situation where I would want to be employed through athletics. Like I would want to be through a medical model where like my position is protected based on my healthcare practices and not based on all the NIL transfers and coaching turnover and that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. You bring up a really, that's a really good perspective is, how do we keep that? But I think it's also part of setting boundaries and it's part of training that that should be integrated into it anyway, is what are our boundaries, whether it's an athletic department or an athletic medicine department, I agree with you in in how it should be and what I think works. But why aren't we having these conversations in our classrooms before you're going out to live on the front lines with that? What are the boundaries? I mean, you hear stuff, you know, trainers hear stuff all the time about things that go on on the weekends and social life and who's you know with who and who spent time with who and who doing this and who's potentially you know using substances and there's a lot of information that because of the relationships that are built that is is disclosed and I think it's really important to to train younger professionals in that what do you do when those things happen rather than wait until they do happen I'm big on prevention I'm big on getting ahead of stuff I think you know one of the things that I look at You know coaching and performance work and mental health you know kind of on that continuum is the more prevention you get the less injuries you get it's like anything else whether that's emotional whether that's physical but there's no money and there's no emphasis put on prevention so we're in a time when prevention is our best offense but we're forced to play defense i can't say this i shouldn't say this you know so, uh, suggestion is in those situations. You know, I think you start to set boundaries and say, "Listen, you know, I, I know it's a really tough decision for you whether you're happy here, or not happy here, or think this is the best place for you." And you know, I just, you know, I, I, my perspective is to make sure you're healthy and go out there and do that. And, and I really don't have a personal opinion on that. And let me get you to somebody that can help you have those conversations to help you make the best decisions um, and really kind of stay in the lanes of. I'm here to keep you healthy. Like I'm I I care about you and I'm here to help you. But once it gets into those things, like that's why we have other people to do that because we don't know what's best, right? Yeah, you could play here, not play here. You know, my thing is to get you ready and healthy enough to be able to do it. So I think you start to develop as as young professionals some kind of go-tos that you can have prepared if we're training for this, if we're practicing this, if we're going through role plays with that. You know, what do you say when this happens? And come up with some really tough scenarios like like this. You know, what if, you know, somebody comes to you and says, okay, well, I got this person that approached me and they want to give me $100,000 for this thing, but I don't want to report it to compliance. I don't know, or I don't know if I should, or I don't have to, or I don't care. And now you have other information that impacts their eligibility or something like that. I mean, now... NIL stuff is expected or asked to be disclosed, but it's not mandated to be disclosed either. Now, there's certain businesses that you're not allowed to do it with if you're representing your institution. Um, But, you know, you get into things like clubs and underage drinking and like, okay, I know this 18-year-old's working in this club doing X, Y, and Z. You know, is it my place to tell them not to Or is it my turn to make sure that they show up for treatment in the morning so they can play tomorrow? So I, I do, I think there's a very relevant conversation on the medical side for how do we stay in our lane in, in a situation where they are seeking your advice because they trust you. And assume you have all the answers. <laughs> if we like only that we were have the all case. The well, maybe between all of us, we have some. Yeah, uh, it, it's tough, um, but I do. I, I, I think that we overlook it. I, I got a lot of requests, especially since COVID, um, to talk both on the medical side and on the coaching side, you know, about the impact on all of us. And and what does that mean? You know, if you don't have healthcare providers to provide the healthcare, people get sick and people get worse. But if we're just as committed, I'll be kind to all of us because we are committed to what we do, but if we're just as committed and just as perfectionistic and just as stubborn and not taking time off and not taking care of ourselves and and giving ourselves some flexibility, mental and emotional flexibility, if we're not good at doing that because we want to be there and we want to help our players and we want to do the right things and we don't want our coaches to be mad at us because we took a day off, they can't practice if we're not there and you go through all these other things. Who's looking out for us? And what does that look like moving forward as you start to see a dip in the number of people going into the medical fields, whatever they be right now? Scary stuff, but they don't talk about that on ESPN. But we talk about it here on Polos and Khakis.
0: I have one other, um, not really a debate, but like a question that I think is going to have more, like, long-term ramifications to talk about. Um, I wrote down his name. Harry Miller is the Ohio State football player who recently announced his medical retirement for mental health reasons. And, um, I thought what he posted was really poignant and not really well said. Um, and I think it was important for someone of that, um, visibility to say that he was going to take a medical retirement because of mental health. But I was curious from your perspective, how you think that is going to affect um, retirement and also eligibility in collegiate athletics? Like, are we going to be able to start issuing medical red shirts for mental illness and things like that?
1: So three pronged approach to your question. Um, again, very well thought out question. I'm very proud of athletes who come forward, whether they be college or pro, and talk about the fact that they've struggled or are struggling or, or have chosen to take care of themselves. You know, we had all the stuff in the Olympics with Simone Biles and all her stuff, and one of the most prominent gymnasts probably ever, and her deciding to to take a step back because she was going through whatever she was going through. You have this gentleman from Ohio State that that's done it. There was a, a woman from Vanderbilt that put out a really long post recently on her experience and importance of mental health. You go back five, six, seven years, Victoria Garrick has been awesome in the, the advocation and, and support for mental health and college athletics and, and things like this. And, um, so first of all, it's an incredible, courageous thing for people to come forward and talk about it, to talk about it in a, in a high level situation, division one football and the Olympics and, and so on and so forth. But you have the Michael Phelps who have talked about his situation and what he went through and how he managed his stuff. You have um, Kevin Love in the NBA and other NBA players that have come forward. You've had some, you know, the NFL does a really good job. They have uh, mental health ambassadors and and stuff in their players association program. I think it's great that people are coming forward and validating the fact that this is important and it it does affect people. you got cut off a little bit. The second part was eligibility. What was the first part that you wanted me to comment on? The impact of something in eligibility, you said. I didn't quite catch that first part.
0: Yeah, what constitutes like retirement and then eligibility with red shirts and um, yeah, can we redshirt a player who has gone through like a really severe depression bout the same way we would redshirt a patient who had a season-ending injury, a situation like that?
1: That's actually the easiest of the questions to to talk about. Um, first of all, I think that we need to treat mental health, mental illness, similar to we treat physical illness, injuries. I like an injury profile, like an injury management kind of thing. Um, there's been some waivers that I know the NCAA has had to deal with on mental health red shirts and eligibility and are they able to do it and so on and so forth. I've read through some of them. Um, the NCAA right now seems to be looking very favorable on well-documented cases of mental illness issues and being forgiven and giving them eligibility time and basically emotional or mental red shirts. Um, it's there's some people that are on the board that are working with the NCA and working with the Sports Science Institute and Dr. Hainline and, and that whole group about what qualifies for that. What kind of documentation do we need to have? And I think that we're getting to a point where if there's clear documentation of a mental illness, that required ongoing treatment at a certain level of severity that i think we're going to be able to to get the medical red shirt somebody required inpatient treatment for a severe mental illness or suicide attempts or things like that i don't think that they should be penalized for getting help right for doing that the same way if they were injured and out for a year we can apply for the medical red shirt and try to get a year back um I think what's going to be more challenging along that line is setting a criteria for what qualifies, what level of care, how much treatment, um, what diagnosis is even. I think we're going to start to see those fights at some point. Um, it's good to be in the game. It's good that they're being recognized and being considered. Now it's going to be, OK, well, if you went to see you know, a, a counselor or a therapist one time at the counseling center on campus, and does that qualify? or a medical red shirt because you got diagnosed with depression? I'm not making that decision at this point because we, we need criteria. If somebody had a suicide attempt, we deal with self-harm in, in this age group, 18 to 23, a lot. Is somebody who hurts themselves able to play? Should they be allowed to play? Well, what's the pros and cons? What if their sport is what keeps them from doing something worse? Well, what if losing a game is what causes them to go over the edge? There's so much that has not been addressed. And I think it, it's really complicated too. There aren't a lot of clear answers, but I think we need to move towards a reasonable criteria of what constitutes waverable. I'm making that word up, but waverable opportunities for them to step away, get the help that they need, so that they can come back and compete and perform and be successful students, athletes, et cetera. Because rarely do you see a person that has a mental health issue that's not performing on the field, not also doing poorly in the classroom and in other areas of their life. So I think we're gonna move towards a way, again, there's been some some players who have made petition to the NCA to have time given back for mental health reasons. Um, most of them get passed um, they get the extra time back. Um, there's a little bit of gray area about what documentation is required, um, but basically, it's going to probably be similar to a medical DQ that a university can do at their own school. But another school can look at it and go, "I'm going to let the kid play. Like we're just medically DQing you from this program. We're not saying the we're not going to the NCAA and saying you can't play anymore. We're saying we don't think it's safe here. You know, you take a kid who had a mental health issue at one school gets treated, is healthier, is doing well, that wants to go to another school, the circumstances around what happens at that second school might be healthier for that individual. This might have been the wrong place. They didn't get along with their coach. Things happened, whatever the situation is. But I think it's going to be on us in our world to start to come up with some kind of criteria or circumstances or or. Least levels of what constitutes a, a mental health red shirt, but I think we're going down that route for sure. Um, I'm worried a little bit, like with anything else that starts off coming from a really good place. Okay, you know, Mr. Miller decided that I'm going to do this, and this is the decision that I make. Fine. Um, are we going to see, like we do with everything else, that being taken advantage a little bit? And, and some of the people in our positions being put in positions to, to make those decisions, I anticipate we will. Um, and how do we respond to that? You you, know, you How do you get, do you get a, a constitution of multiple clinicians that get together and assess that as, yes, that makes sense? Is it the individual thing? Is it the, then you start to look at, well, okay, well, if the psychologist in the program made the decision that the, Person can't play here. Would an independent person that wasn't outside the program make the same decision? There's a lot of ways that that could get sideways too, just like it does with medical diagnoses. I think this was, you know, a torn labrum, and we decided not to operate. We decided to do treatment and rehab and do whatever. But then this or that happened. Well, another doctor says let's do the surgery and the kid can go back and play. How do you, you know? I think it gets into a lot of those contentious situations as well. Um, but again, you know, going back to the comment that I made before of mental health being now where concussion was 20 years ago, I hope 20 years from now, we're having a different conversation. But yeah, I think, I think, you know, that's the other thing you talk about, you know, NIL and you talk about, you know, some of the Alston money and you talk about some of the other things that are out there right now. If I come forward, does that then impact my ability to make money? Will there be less kids coming forward? Because that could impact my ability to make some of this money out there. If People think I'm, you know, whatever word we wanna use to not say nice things about mental health and mental illness. I'm not gonna disclose that and I'm not gonna come forward and talk about it if it's gonna cost me $50,000 a year in my pocket because this person who was offering me the money may be stigmatizing my mental illness. It could push it really far backwards too.
0: Yeah, it feels like a a slippery slope. That like it feels like really positive change, but kind of it's just risky sometimes.
1: Well, and, and all change is risky, right? You're gonna have some liability. You're gonna have some stuff you didn't plan for, um, and we have th- that's how society moves forward. That's how things move forward. There's gonna be collateral damage. Um, But I think where it goes back to what we talked about earlier, too, uh, at the university level, and I I think also at the pro level, we've seen this too, is you better start thinking really seriously about what kind of people you're hiring in these roles. I don't want a mental skills person making a decision about a kid's mental health for eligibility that's gonna come back and show that we have somebody making a decision that isn't qualified to make that decision, and that hurts the kid and the institution. Like, where are those roles and who oversees those roles? And so it all integrates. I mean, we've had a beautiful almost two-hour conversation now, and I I love it. But what it comes down to is all of this is integrated and has overlap, and none of it is really clear cut. And it's having conversations like this and having more people have discussions and trying to come to some consensus about what are our priorities, how do we do it, how do we protect the people that deserve to be protected, which is the young people that we deal with. How do we also think about the collateral damage of the people in academics and the people in sports medicine and the people that are also impacted by all these decisions because it's not as as clear cut as it may have been thought out to be when the, the laws were changed or passed or whatever, when it was like, yeah, let's just pay them. Yeah, they deserve to get paid makes them look really good, but it's not necessarily as thought out to all these implications that we're all going to have to help them manage and, and manage for ourselves.
2: Yeah, I think this kind of profession is in a similar way is kind of like what athletic trainers are. Like we're we're on a very high rise, like we're starting to get some, some traction and some notoriety and things that we need. But I think, you know, it's gonna need, you know, higher healthcare professionals, the physicians, the, you know, the nurses, the DOs and things like that to really kind of go to bat for, um, you know, sports psychologists and mental uh, mental uh, health and mental skills, all that stuff. Uh, so I think it's heading in the right direction, but, um, you know, still some work to be done and I'm, I'm intrigued to see how it goes in the next five, 10 years. Me um, too.
1: And hopefully I'll get back on and talk to you guys about those changes as it comes.
2: Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we've been rocking for almost two hours. It's definitely our, our longest episode. We're going to wrap it up here with our standard question that we ask everyone, and then we'll do some this or that um, after that. So our standard question is, what advice do you have for young professionals, athletic trainers, sports psychologists who maybe interested in getting into uh, either field uh, or just anything in life in general? What do you got for us?
1: I, I think the, the thing that I, I always want to uh, educate people on and ask them to think about is you know, when you go into any of the helping professions, when you go into the worlds that we choose to go into, um, be as educated and open-minded as you can be, do your research, be prepared, ask a lot of questions, talk to a lot of people, because all of these professions are wonderful and do awesome things, but they're more complicated than they look on a, on a piece of paper or on a, a job fair board. Um, and in order to make the commitment that it takes to do them well, you got to be well prepared and, and understand what you're getting yourself into. Um, so I think that's that's a really good thing to think about. And the la- the other thing that I think is really important is you know for all of us, we're all performers in our own life, in our jobs, in our relationships, in the situations that we get into. And you know we we can be really harsh. And I think if we stay creative in problem solving things rather than judging ourselves and others, then we also reduce our risk of having more serious mental health issues. Um, Performance is what we do. Mental wellness and mental health is who we are. Those things cannot be separated. In order to perform well, you have to be well. In order to be well, when you are well, then you can perform well. And I think those are two big things that I would just offer up for everybody.
2: Self-care is just as good as healthcare, care, right? Isn't Amen. That? It is health care. There you go. All right. So we're going to finish up with something called we do this or that with our, uh, our guests. Are you ready? Yes, sir. Alright, so first one, beach or pool, since you're a Florida guy. Beach. All right, so we'll stay with that. So uh with the beach topic, are we Gulf side or oceanside?
1: Ooh. Grew up on the oceanside, live on the Gulf side. I I'm gonna be I'm gonna be kind of uh I'm gonna give my hometown some stuff. I'm gonna go Gulf side. All right.
2: I've, I've been a Gulfside side guy in my, my time in Florida, so I, I enjoyed the St. Pete Beach, the touristy spot, I should say. All right, last thing, go-to pub sub-order.
1: Ooh, Puff call. I make my own. Um, I do the customized one is my favorite one. Um, I like uh, honey maple chicken with mozzarella cheese and all the fixings oh that actually sounds
2: really good um unfortunately there's not that sounds any amazing publics, uh <laughs> in the pennsylvania area
1: but you got wawa in the pennsylvania area
2: no we have sheets yes have wawa. yes sheets.
1: um thanks you guys it's always fun to get on and talk about these topics you guys are really well versed and, and come in real, real prepared with important questions. And again, if there's any feedback that comes from it, when you post it, people that have questions or anything that you need, follow-up information, resources, any of that reach out, I'm happy to supply them for you. If you guys want to become, you know, a little bit more adverse that having those resources for, for the people that may be listening, let me know.
2: Awesome. Well, thanks again. The last two hours have been awesome. Definitely dropping you know, a bunch of knowledge for, you know, athletic trainers, athletes, you know, people who may be interested in the, in the mental skills or mental uh, health side of things. Uh, we can't thank you enough. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on again soon.
1: Yeah, let's not wait three years. I'm ready to go again.
2: Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Thanks again for listening, everyone. And as always, remember who you are.
0: And make good choices.